0: Our community by demonstrating the love of God in tangible ways with no strings attached. And that's core. It's core to how we want to love our community. We want to demonstrate. How many of you know it's not enough to say I love you? You have to demonstrate that. It's one thing to say it, but it's another thing when we actually live out what it means to love people. So we want to demonstrate that love in tangible ways with no strings attached. Whether they ever come to Timberline or not, whether they ever agree with us or see things the way we do or not, we want to love people in a tangible way because they're created in the image of God, and that's enough for us to love them. Do you agree with that? All right, about two of you. Well, then I just changed my sermon. I'm going to talk to you about No, I know that you agree. You're just quiet tonight because it's rainy, and you should have gotten coffee before you come in here. Well, really, this ministry is about pursuing the least, the lost, the forgotten, and the poor to to show them how passionately God loves them and, and how he wants to touch them. Um, And there's really no limit to what can happen in in our community because we serve a big and awesome God. God's called us to be a part of this. So there's construction teams and repair teams that go into houses. There's a moving ministry. Coming up this Christmas season is something we call the bridge. We've been doing this for uh, about three years now. And basically the bridge is just a gigantic Christmas party for low-income families that aren't able to celebrate Christmas like a lot of people are able to celebrate it. And so we just come together for a big party. We have a meal, there's entertainment, there's gifts for the children, Um, and it's just a way to love people with no strings attached. And so if you have an interest in getting more involved with Serve 6.8, there's some folks at a table out in the mall that would love to talk with you, connect with you. Some things that are coming up um, uh, in in the real near future uh, are a new ministry uh, called the 6.8 Prayer Team, and that's just people who will pray for all these different um, um, people who are serving in the community, wherever they're serving, that will just be bathing those people in prayer. Um, you can find out more information, sign up for that out at the table in the mall. There's also a team that's gonna help a a single lady who needs assistance moving this Saturday. You can sign up to help her move out at this table in the mall. And then if you just want to get on an email list where you are made aware of opportunities and there are weekly opportunities for you to demonstrate the love of God in tangible ways with no strings attached. You can sign up, get on that email list, and they'll shoot you out emails, and you will have more opportunities to serve than you know what to do with, okay? And so I hope that you'll do that. The the whole idea, Serve 6.8, 6.8 comes from two kind of core passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. Micah 6.8 says, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 6, chapter 6, verse 8 says, Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. All right? And so I hope that you'll check that out and get involved and let God use your life to make a difference in the lives of other people, all right? We talked about fall, and uh, I'm enjoying fall. There are three things that I love, but, well, there's a lot of things I love about fall. I love the colors changing, and it's like peak right now. It's about to end, so if you, and it maybe this rain just knocked all the leaves off, so if you haven't seen it, too bad for you. But I hope that you got to see it. It is amazing that we live so close to so much spectacular beauty, isn't it? You know there's people all over the world that spend a lot of money to vacation where we can get to in about 30 minutes? That's where we live. It's a great, great thing. And so I love that about fall, but there's three things that always come to mind when I think of fall. Pumpkin spice lattes. Told you about my affection for those. Christmas is near. You realize it's less than three months away. Just letting you know. And I hope that makes you as happy as it makes me. The third thing is football season is here. I love football, but I got to be honest with you, I am growing weary with the NFL, and it's not even because of replacement refs. How many of you are just weary because of that? And how many of you saw the Monday Night Football game? Okay. How many of you are Packer fans? Okay. We'll pray. How many of you are Seahawks fans and you didn't see anything wrong with that game whatsoever? (laughs) Okay. It's not even the refs. What I'm growing weary with, with the NFL, is the way that players are celebrating after they make a play. Do you think it's gotten worse? Some of you do not watch football and you're thinking, I did not come out in the rain to hear you talk about football. Well, you're going to have to just live with this for just a minute because I have a point, okay? It is crazy how players are celebrating after they make a play. That's, that's not always that great of a play. Now, here's my idea. If you are paid $5 million a year to catch a football and then you actually catch the football when it's thrown right into your hands. You have not done anything extraordinary (laughs) that would call for a silly dance. Are you with me on this? Okay, now, now to be fair, if you jump up in the air and someone hits your legs at the same time someone hits your head and you fly upside down through the air and upside down suspended in air, you reach out one hand and you catch a football, that might merit a little dance. Okay? But if you just do what you're paid to do, I'm not sure it calls for a dance. I uh, was watching a game about a week ago, and a guy, they handed off the football, and the guy ran, and when he got to the line, a guy on the other team tackled him, which is what he's paid a lot of money to do. And after that tackle, he did this all sorts of, (laughs) however they do the dance. I'm the best, you're a loser, all the stuff that they do. The score was 23 to 0, they were losing. And this guy's No, we're the best. Sorry for the Packer fans, that's their inside joke. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think this guy lo- doesn't really understand the object of the game. It's actually to score more points than the other team when the game ends. But he was celebrating because he got a tackle, right? But but that's the world we live in, isn't it? That's the culture we live in. We live in a culture, Pastor Jerry talked about it last weekend, that is bent on self-promoting. We are a culture that is about strength, it's about power, it's about self-promotion. And it's in a lot of different aspects of our world. How many of you have just thoroughly enjoyed all of the political commercials on television? (laughs) Hasn't that been a treat? That makes you want to watch replacement refs in the NFL, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't you just love it if a candidate would come on television and just say something like, my name is, you know, John Doe, whoever. I'm running for office, here's who I am, here's what I stand for. The truth is, I have some strengths and I have some weaknesses. The truth also is that my opponent has some strengths and some weaknesses, and and you have to make a decision based on on your values and your ideology between the two of us, but you need to understand that, that I'm not perfect. And I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and I'll probably make some more if you elect me. And I also need to tell you that I have blind spots. I know it. And so I'm gonna, if you elect me, I'm gonna need a strong team that's gonna come around me. And I need people that are gonna tell me the truth, that are gonna push back on me, that are gonna think differently than I do. And I'm gonna need some people that, um, you know, will, will balance out where I'm weak. Because I have weaknesses, and, and I need people who are going to be strong because that's what's going to make the best decision. Wouldn't you just love to hear that? Now, we probably won't ever hear that because they probably wouldn't get elected because we live in a culture where we don't want to see weakness in our leaders. We, we have a low tolerance for vulnerability when it comes to our leaders. And so we, we get political campaigns, and I don't care which side of the aisle, we get political campaigns where promises are made that there's no intent whatsoever to actually keep them because it's impossible to keep a lot of the promises that are made. But people, people want to believe that it's true. We want to live in this, this fairy tale land where somehow leaders are, are just to cut above and, and they've reached this place that is above the rest of us. We want to believe that about our leaders. Sadly, it's not just true in politics. Um, I was pastoring a church a number of years ago in Colorado Springs, and I remember one Sunday morning I was teaching, and I gave an illustration um, about a, a fight that my wife and I had. I shared that in, in my sermon. Now, it wasn't a physical fight, but it wasn't a discussion either. You know what, you know what I'm saying? That's like the Christian word. We had a discussion. No, we, we had it out. And I shared this illustration. I didn't give any details about the fight. I don't remember what I was talking about. I didn't give any details and I had my wife's permission before I talked about this whole ordeal. It was just to illustrate a point. Well, I I remember about a week and a half after that, a lady made an appointment to come in to talk to me about some things that she felt were wrong with the church and specifically were wrong with me. And at the top of her list was she said to me, People do not want a pastor that has fights with his wife. You should never share from the pulpit that you had a fight with your wife because you need to be the example to people. And I thought to myself, the example you want me to be is a fairy tale. I mean, it's just, it's just not real. And I know some of you are thinking, did you have a fight recently? Because I don't know if I can sit here and listen to you talk. Because that's what we want to see in leaders. And, and we create this picture that's just not accurate. You know, if you read study about pastors, if you read surveys that are done, one of the primary reasons that pastors burn out and become fried is because often people put expectations on their lives that are impossible to ever live up to. Now, I'm grateful, hugely grateful for this church because this church loves it's pastors like no church I've ever been a part of. This is an amazing place to be. But by and large, if you look at stats across the country, that's largely why pastors burn out. Because there's, there's this thing that says we don't want leaders, especially in the church world, to, to be real people. And, and if, if, they're, if they do have an occasional fight with their wife, don't tell us because we don't want to know the truth about that. And here's the weird thing to me. We all know that all of creation is broken. I mean, we know that, right? We understand that it's broken. That includes each and every single one of us. But so often, we insist on pretending that we're not, that we're not really broken. And unfortunately, the church may be second only to politics where this pretending become so so real and so true in our lives. And I know some of you might say, but we're Christians now. So that's not relevant to us, right? We were broken, but now that Jesus is in our lives, we're not broken anymore. And I would just say, really? Is that your experience? Because it sure isn't my experience. I mean, I know when I look at my own life, my experience is that I still don't have all the answers. I still have blind spots in my life that sometimes I I just, I don't see at all until someone helps point them out. I have weaknesses and tendencies that I have to constantly pay attention to in my life. Those just didn't go away. Sometimes I'm just flat out self-centered. Sometimes my motives aren't pure. Sometimes even the good things that I do, I recognize there's a motivation in there that's really about promoting me. Sometimes I hurt deep down inside, and I'm not even sure why. Sometimes I'm angry, and I can't even articulate why it is. And I could go on and on and fill the rest of our time with where I'm weak. And the truth is, if we're, if we're honest, all of us can relate to the reality of the brokenness of our world. We don't have to look any further than ourselves. And so we're in this series uh, that we've called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dick talked to us about getting beneath the surface, and he used this great picture, and the picture was of an iceberg. And an and iceberg, you can only see like 10% that sticks above the water. 90% of the iceberg is actually under the water. And, and he talked about how that's kind of how we are too. Like 10% of us is above the water, above the surface, what people see, but the bulk of who we are is actually beneath the surface. And the interesting thing is that we, get, we spend so much time and so much energy and even money on that 10% that everyone can see, our image. We live in an image-driven culture. And sometimes we completely neglect the bulk of who we are that's below the surface. So Pastor Dick talked to us about that, and then last week, Brent talked to us about the fact that if we're going to really dig deep down below the surface, we have to somewhere in that mix, we have to get to to, uh, our, our past, our history, our family of origin. He used the illustration of the country song. I was so proud of Pastor Brent for using a country song analogy. The house that built me. And, and, and it's really a song about that, about the, the way I was brought up served to shape me and influence me, and it created a certain way of thinking in me. My thinking, I know, has been shaped by the way I grew up. There's some of my thinking I know that I'm not even fully aware of that has been shaped by the way that, that I grew up. And we don't always realize how much it influences us. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, if you want to follow along on the screen you can do that Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 Paul writes this he says you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness so what's Paul telling us? He's telling us that our minds are not just computers that process data. Our minds don't just contain knowledge, we actually have a mind set. In other words, we have a way of thinking. And that way of thinking is broken. There is brokenness to our way of thinking. And the answer for that broken way of thinking, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, is that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that our minds be renewed, and that creates transformation in our lives. So as we dig deep beneath the surface and we look deep into our past and how we've been shaped, no matter who we are, we begin to find that there is brokenness there. Now, the thesis of this whole series is that it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, that that is impossible. And part of becoming emotionally mature and being transformed by the renewing of our minds is learning to live in brokenness and vulnerability rather than the pretending that is so common in our world and in our culture. And that's really where we want to kind of focus our thoughts tonight. Peter Scazzaro wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which we've been um, advocating and promoting that, that you get. We, hopefully we still have some in the, in the bookstore. Um, he also wrote a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church. And in that book he says that there are three primary ways that people tend to respond. Um, To this reality of brokenness in their lives and you can this isn't in your bulletin, but you can jot them down if you want He says one of the ways is people flee They flee from the reality of that brokenness in other words. There are some people who just try to bury the pain and they bury that pain in some form of addictive behavior whether it's illegal drugs or or alcohol or prescription drugs or workaholism or a sex addiction or whatever it might be or sometimes even things that in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but they use them to run from the pain or or to at least dull the pain in their life so they flee. The second way he says that people sometimes respond is that they fight. They just, they become angry and bitter and, and maybe abusive, even violent because of that pain and that brokenness, and they lash out at people. They're angry at the world. Have you ever ever met someone who doesn't seem like they're happy unless they're angry? And they they maybe can't even articulate why, but there's just this deep-seated anger. A third way, he says, that people deal with that brokenness and pain is that they hide. They hide. Typically, they hide behind their successes. And so they live in this world of denial concerning their brokenness, and and they only acknowledge and talk about successes while they're ignoring other parts of their lives that are falling apart. And and so they hide from the reality of that. Now, the fourth way, and, and, and obviously the preferred way, is that we learn to live in brokenness and vulnerability. How do we do that? How do we live in brokenness and vulnerability? Well, it's an important question. It's important because the opposite of that is often living in pride and defensiveness. So how do we learn to live that way? Well, there's a couple things that I would suggest, and then there's a story that will illustrate it. The first thing is that we need a theology of weakness. We need a theology of weakness, and by that what I mean is that we need to understand the story that we all find ourselves in, the grand redemptive story of God because this is a story of brokenness. It's a story of weakness. Now, it didn't start that way. We know that, and we know the story. We've talked about this a lot on Wednesday nights. It started the way God intended. But when humanity, when Adam and Eve in the garden believed the lie that God was holding out on them, that God did not have their best interest at heart, and they chose to rebel against the loving, caring rule of God over them, All sorts of horrible things became a part of the human experience, and brokenness became our reality. Separation, brokenness, everything became broken. Broken lives, broken relationships, broken creation. Because of man's willful decision to rebel against the loving, caring rule of God over him, everything became broken. But that's not the whole story, right? Thank God, that's not the whole story. The story continues, and in the midst of our brokenness, that is 100% our fault, a result of our choice, God pursues us relentlessly through Jesus. He pursues us to redeem the story, to redeem the brokenness in our lives, and he begins piecing us together piecing together that brokenness to make us new. He begins, he begins in us on earth as it is in heaven, what we've been singing about. That's what God does. But make no mistake about it. When we think about the kingdom of God, his loving rule and his reign, his kingdom is both now and not yet. And as long as there is an aspect of his kingdom that is not yet, we will live in the reality of brokenness. This is not then. We are not what we will be. Aren't you glad about that? Uh, You have to be glad about that. I'm so thankful that this is not the end product, that God continues redeeming my life. He continues to take broken pieces and, and, and push me to him. And fill me with his love and his grace and his mercy and he's shaping me and molding me. But as long as as the kingdom is not fully and completely yet, we will live in the reality of that brokenness. Okay? So the second thing is that we need to accept the gift of weakness. And that's not a typo. The gift of weakness. We need to learn to accept that gift. Turn your, your Bibles or follow along on the screen over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, Paul's writing this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Here's what Paul writes. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore Paul concludes, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, There was given to me a thorn in my flesh. Now, scholars debate what that thorn might have been. There's a lot of different opinions. We don't really know for sure, but whatever it was, it was a gift to Paul. Thorns in ancient times, were used as stakes in the ground during battle to slow the enemy's progress. Now Paul says it tormented him, but it also kept pride from advancing in his life. It was a gift. He had so accepted the gift of weakness that he actually said, that's why I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. That same book uh emotionally healthy church peter Schizero says this listen to this quote he says our world treats weakness and failure as terminal it says you are a loser but god says this is a universal human experience cutting across all ages cultures races and social classes it is, my specially, it is my gift specially crafted for you, so you can lead out of weakness and brokenness, not your own strength and power. My understanding, Peter Schizero says, was that God wanted to heal my brokenness and vulnerabilities completely. Few consider brokenness as God's design and will for our lives. And I would say that's very true in the American church. That we would consider weakness to be a gift and God's design for our lives the gift of weakness the reason it's a gift is because it pushes us to dependence it pushes us to dependence our culture values self-sufficiency we don't want to see cracks in our leaders we don't want to see vulnerability we don't want to know about weaknesses but in the kingdom of God It's all about dependence upon God and interdependence upon each other. That's why Paul uses the analogy in describing the church of a human body. Because our body, the parts of our body, are dependent. They're interdependent upon one another to function. And Paul says that's kind of what we are. Jesus is the head and we're the body. And so the ear can't say to the eye, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. We're interdependent upon each other and all completely dependent upon him. That's how God designed for his kingdom to be. And that's who he's called called us to be. Now, living in brokenness and vulnerability doesn't mean that we just become content with dysfunction and we write it off, as I've heard so many times by different people throughout the years, by just saying, well, that's just the way I am. That's not what it means to live in brokenness. It also doesn't mean to be crushed and become paralyzed because you're crushed by the past or or by the pain. Living in brokenness and vulnerability means putting ourselves at Jesus' feet and acknowledging that we can't do it ourselves, that we are not smart enough, we are not gifted enough, we are not talented enough, we are broken, and we need to be rescued daily. Paul says, in him I live and move and have my being. It's only in him that I live. Well, Jesus told a story that illustrates beautifully, I think, weakness and vulnerability, as well as the opposite of weakness and vulnerability. There's a painting that uh, I think they'll bring up on the screen by Rembrandt that he created, he painted of this story. This is his rendering of this story. We know the story as the parable of the prodigal. That's not his painting, that's me. We didn't paint that. I'm not sure if we have it. Maybe we don't have it. If we don't, that's okay. We know the story, right? You're familiar with the story. There's, There's a father who has two sons. The younger son comes to his dad and asks for his inheritance. Now we don't quite get that in our culture. This is not the younger son coming to dad saying, Dad, I think it's time for me to get out on my own. And it would help me if you could like pay rent for an apartment, get me started, maybe give me a car, maybe down payment on a house. It's not that. a very wealthy father in that culture what it meant was the younger son was coming to dad and and basically what he was saying to dad was I am eager for you to die and I want to live now as though you were already dead that's what it meant to ask for the inheritance before the father had died amazingly the father gives him the inheritance this if you read the story you know the story Luke chapter 15 the son goes out and he blows every penny this is a lot of money wealth so it's a lot of money that was given this inheritance he blows all of it on on what Luke 15 describes as wild living he just blows it every cent He is completely desolate and has been utterly irresponsible with everything his father gave him. He finds himself in the worst possible place that a young Jewish man could be, and that is feeding pigs. Because in that culture, for a Jew to touch a pig made him more unclean than visiting a prostitute that's where he's at he's feeding pigs and this is a parable it's not a true story Jesus told it to make a point point. and Jesus wants to take it to this extreme picture so that we could understand what he's trying to communicate here well finally you know the story the son comes to I love the phrase it says to the end of himself that's the start of weakness and vulnerability when we come to the end of ourselves he comes to the end of himself and he decides I'm going back home and as he makes his way back home, he's rehearsing the speech. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten in trouble? you remember back in the day? And on your way home, you know you're busted, and you rehearse the speech? What you're, that's what he's doing. He's on his way. And, and he's already, he, he already knows in his mind he can't be a son anymore, forfeited that. And so he's not worthy to be a son. Truth is, he's not even worthy to be a, a, a servant. But he's rehearsing a speech where he asks his dad for mercy in hopes that his dad will actually make him a slave just so he doesn't have to feed pigs anymore. And so on his way back, he's making his way, and you can't you just see him rehearsing in his mind? He's like, Dad, Father, uh, I know what I did. was... Re-. You know, he's, he's going over it. It says that the father sees him from a long way off. You know why? Because Dad was looking for him. That's what dads do, isn't it? Some of you in this room, you've got kids that have gone a long ways from God. You haven't stopped looking. The posture of your heart, if you have, I just encourage you, you just keep looking and you keep praying. And the picture of the father in the story is God. And so God's looking. And when he sees him, the father sees the son from a long way, it says the father takes off running. He's running. Wealthy, important men didn't do that in that day. This father didn't care. He takes off running to his boy. And when he finally reaches his boy, his boy starts the speech, and his dad just throws himself on the boy, interrupts the speech, and he strips off those stinky, torn clothes, and he puts on him the best robe. He, puts, he gives him the signet ring, which is of legal authority, back on the sun. He gives him shoes, which is a picture of someone who lives in the house as a son, not a servant. And then he throws this humongous party, and there's music, and there's dancing, and there's a big old fat calf that they killed and they, I don't know, like roasted or whatever they did with it huge huge party and it's this incredible picture but we all know there's two sons in the story there's two lost sons in the story not not just one it's just that only one son chose the pathway of brokenness of weakness of humility and vulnerability the older brother was just as lost as the younger brother it just looked differently in some ways, I would suggest the older brother was in much more, a much more dangerous place, and that's really why Jesus told the story. The younger son, it was pretty clear that he had hit bottom. When you're a Jewish boy and you're feeding pigs, it's pretty clear. But the, the older brother, he couldn't see or, or he wouldn't see his own brokenness through his respectability and his morality. The older brother hid his brokenness behind his doing. It seemed, like, it seemed like he would do all the right stuff, but he was just as broken as the younger brother, if not more so, down below the surface where 90% of that iceberg lies. A lot of people, it's been my experience over years of ministry, hide their brokenness behind their religion. It's quite a place to hide it. I've said this before, there's no worse pride than religious pride because it blinds us to see what's really below the surface. A Lot of people tend to hide there. You know, I would say that some of the meanest people I've ever met have been mean in the name of their religion. It's amazing what it hides. And that's where this older brother found himself. The opposite of living in brokenness and vulnerability is often pride and defensiveness. The language of brokenness and vulnerability sounds like this I don't know. It's okay with mystery. It's comfortable with recognizing that our God, we can never fathom his ways. It sounds like I was wrong. I'm sorry. I need help. That's the language of brokenness and vulnerability. Let me just read you something here as we get ready to close. It's from this book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. It's a contrast between proud and defensive, broken and vulnerable, okay? And I just want you to listen to, as I read this and think about which, which better describes you. I've, I've read through this about four times now and I'm not happy with the results in my own life. Number one. I AM GUARDED AND PROTECTIVE ABOUT MY IMPERFECTIONS AND FLAWS. OR I'M TRANSPARENT AND WEAK. I DISCLOSE MYSELF TO APPROPRIATE OTHERS. NUMBER TWO, I FOCUS ON THE POSITIVE, STRONG, SUCCESSFUL PARTS OF MYSELF. OR I'M AWARE OF THE WEAK, NEEDY, LIMITED PARTS OF WHO I AM, AND I FREELY ADMIT FAILURE. NUMBER THREE, I'M EASILY OFFENDED AND DEFENSIVE. or. I'm approachable and open to input. Number four, I naturally focus first on the flaws, mistakes, and sins of others. Or I'm aware of my own brokenness. I have compassion and am slow to judge others. Number five, I give my opinion a lot even when I'm not asked. Or I'm slow to speak and quick to listen. Number six, I don't get close to people. Or I'm open soft and curious about others number seven I keep people from really seeing what is going on inside of me or I delight in showing vulnerability and weakness that Christ's power may be seen number eight I like to control most situations or I can let go and give people opportunity to earn my trust number nine I have I have to be right in order to feel strong and good Or I understand that God's strength reveals itself in admitting mistakes, weaknesses, and statements like I was wrong. Number 10, I blame others. Or I take responsibility for myself and speak mostly in the I, not the you or they. Number 11, I often hold grudges and rarely ask forgiveness. Or I don't hold people in debt to me and I'm able to ask others for forgiveness when needed. Number 12 when I'm offended I write people off or when I'm offended I ask questions to explore what happened Number 13 I deny avoid or withdraw from painful realities Or I honestly look at the truth underneath the surface even when it hurts Number 14 I give answers and explanations to those in pain hoping to fix or change them Or I am present with people in their pain and I'm comfortable with mystery and with saying I don't know. Almost done. Number 15, I have to prove I'm right when I'm, when I'm wronged, or I can let things go. Number 16, I am demanding, or I assert myself respectfully and kindly. Number 17, I'm highly conscious and concerned about how others perceive me, or I'm more aware of God and others than the impression I'm making. And finally, I see people as resources to be used, or I see people as gifts to be loved and enjoyed. Now I don't know about you, but there were too many for me that ended up in the first column and not the last column. And so as we begin to prepare our hearts to receive communion here in just a few moments, Ultimately our desire for this series is that we would be shaped more and more into a likeness of Jesus Jesus set the example for living in brokenness and vulnerability God decides to become one of us become flesh and How does he choose to do that? He's born into poverty To a young woman who gives birth in a stable and lays him in a manger, because that's all they have. He never traveled very far from his hometown. He was misunderstood by even his closest followers. And in the end, he's convicted in an illegal trial and sentenced to die by a spineless Roman leader in the most gruesome, painful way imaginable. And knowing all that light ahead, we get a picture of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane with his sweat falling like drops of blood, where he prays, Father, if there's any way this cup could pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. He's arrested in the dark and abandoned by his closest friends and hanging on a cross, gasping for air, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pretty broken and vulnerable for God, wouldn't you say? The writer of Hebrews sums it up like this. It's not on the screen, but he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want us to pray before I have the ushers come. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, I just pray that you would help us all to peel away the veneer and to dig deep below the surface into that 90%. And to... Resolve that we will live in brokenness and vulnerability. That for some of us, we will stop pretending. We'll stop fighting. We'll stop running away. We'll stop hiding. we'll come to a place where we recognize that it's in our brokenness, it's in our weakness, that you actually become our power and our strength. We will allow our brokenness to drive us to our knees, to you. We confess our dependence upon you. We need to be rescued no matter who we are, and for some in this room, they've put on an image that they've got it all together and no one would ever guess the depth of brokenness in their life. I pray that tonight, God, they would just get real. You know it, you see it anyway, that they would get real with you and that they would surrender all that they are even those corners of their lives that they've tried to keep from you, that they would surrender it all. And that God, through our weakness, you would be strong. That you would work in us and through us in a way that there's no question who gets the credit and the glory at the end of the day. Lord, we repent of pride, defensiveness, arrogance, and we turn to you. Be our strength, we pray. Thank you for the example you set in offering your life for us. We come to this table now to remember in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask the ushers if they would come. And they're going to distribute the emblems of communion as we wrap up tonight. If you would hold those emblems till everyone's been served. You don't have to be a member to receive communion with us. We just ask that you have relationship with God through Jesus. If you're not comfortable with communion, you can let it pass. It's okay. But if you'll hold them until everyone's been served, then I'll come back and we'll receive those emblems together, okay? Stand with me if you're able to do so and take these emblems in your hand. You know, Jesus set the example for living for us, for loving, for ministry. We started our, our talk today talking about a way. to to love our city in northern Colorado through serving. The most effective ministry comes from brokenness and vulnerability. You know, you can serve out of pride and defensiveness, but when you serve out of brokenness and vulnerability, you walk in the way of Jesus. What we hold in our hand are emblems that represent Jesus being broken and spilled out on our behalf. That's the example he gave us. And so when we gather at this table, we remember that sacrifice, but we also hear the calling that we now as his body are to be broken and spilled out for a desperate, broken world. That we lay down our rights In fact, what Jesus did didn't consider equality with God something to grasp. He laid it down. He emptied himself. John 13 says he showed the full extent of his love by taking a towel and one by one washing the feet of each disciple, including Peter, who would deny him, including Judas, who would betray him, because he had laid down the rights to be defensive. their feet and then he gave his life body broken blood spilled for the sake of a broken world and that's our calling it's no less than to be broken and spilled out for our world let's pray lord jesus we are overwhelmed by your sacrifice Broken in your bloodshed. And we do it responding to your call that we follow in your way, that we change the world through surrender, through sacrifice, through pure love. May we too be broken and spilled out for the needs of our world. May we live. As a testimony that Jesus is indeed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We do this in remembrance of you, proclaiming your death until you come. Let's receive the breath. And uh, let's continue in this series. I I tell you what, our pastoral team's going through this book. It's digging deep into all of us. It's a good thing. So I hope it is for you too. God bless you.